Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to April Dunford, a consultant, advisor, and author. We talked a lot about positioning for your product. So April works with several companies on how they can be more deliberate and strategic on how to position their products and differentiate themselves from others in a marketplace. People tend to think of positioning as a Mad Libs fill-in-the-blank activity where you introduce your product, define it, and define the market you're in. But positioning needs to move beyond this fill-in-the-blank exercise that many of us have used in the past. It's about setting the context right and breaking down your product to its components. April has a really powerful approach to positioning and walks us through how to get it right for our products. So this all got me to thinking, do we position deliberately? Or do we often let the market, our customers, or worse yet, our competitors define our positioning? Companies have to be more mindful about the context they set, the vision they set, the goals they're pursuing. Really, they need to be more mindful about how they frame their product and their product position within a market. It's easy to lose sight of all of this add new features that don't fit what your product position truly is in the market, and then your product risks turning into this sort of Frankenstein that no one cares about. So I ask, are you confident in your positioning? Let me know at eBodic at Twitter or eBodic at pendo.io. Welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with April Dunford. April, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Well, first of all, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. My background is a bit interesting. Like I've spent 25 years running marketing and product teams in startups mainly, although I've done seven startups and six of those startups have been acquired. And so through acquisition, I ended up running some big teams at some big companies, but that's kind of been my thing since the beginning. And I more recently in the last couple of years have sort of made the transition to doing more consulting work. And very specifically, I work with mainly growth stage startups, but also some bigger companies. And my focus is very specifically on positioning work. So a ton of experience at, you know, both the early stage and larger companies via the acquisitions, you know, before you, you became a consultant, why did you make that transition? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, like I, my career has been a really weird journey. Like, and I don't think any of it was very well planned. It just kind of worked out and things were fun. And then I just did what I did. Like I actually have a degree in engineering, like systems design engineering. And when I finished university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And my friend was a couple of years older than me and she had an executive job at a startup and she got me this job at a startup and it was in the product marketing group, but these are this were the job requirements. We were selling a database to database people. And so the job requirement was one, you needed to be able to perform SQL queries on stage 
so two was on stage, not must not be afraid of public speaking. And I was like, I got, I got both of those. <laughs> so I got the job because my friend worked there. And then that startup ended up getting acquired by a big, big company in the Valley. And then my boss left. And then I inherited this big global marketing team. And like, literally at that point, I couldn't even spell marketing. Like, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But, you know, if there's one thing you get in engineering is you get this big ego and you figure like, how hard can it be? It can't be worse than, you know, fourth year calculus or mechanics of informable solids or C++. I'll be fine. And so then I just kind of figured it out as I went and, and I decided that was kind of my bag. And so I did a series of startups. Most of those got acquired. And then, you know, seven startups, I kind of decided that's enough. Uh, I kind of want to do something different. And I identified this sort of problem space of positioning, which is really kind of a strategic problem. And it's a bit of product. It's a bit of marketing. It's, it's a bit of business strategy. And they're just, it, it was the thing that I struggled with the most in startups. And I figured I knew something about that. And if I could teach people how to do that better, that would be a good business. So that's what I do now. Awesome. I mean, we we have a similar background. I I have a oh, yeah. engineering degree and spent most of my career in marketing or externally focused. Don't you think the engineering degree is a good degree to have for just doing stuff? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely do it. You know, in marketing, it's become digital, so a lot of it is math. So I think about things very logically, which I think is a benefit. Whether I'm out there, you know, talking about the state of product management, or you know, I'm running a marketing department. I think the engineering background has definitely helped. Though I'm missing that one yeah. bullet on my resume that, you know, is can make SQL queries seem interesting. On <laughs> right. I got that, man. That's my secret sauce. I know. I know. <laughs> Select star from students. That was my like, big query I had to do. <laughs> oh, my God. It's amazing I made it through that job. Uh, it sounds like not only you make it through, but you did a pretty good job there. So, oh, yeah, no, it was awesome. I was excellent at the uh, onstage SQL query. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've been on the executive seat and you've also been an advisor to a lot of different companies. Talk to me about what people get wrong about their products or product management. Yeah. So, you know, and I got this super biased view on this because this is the thing I've been deep on for the last couple of years. But in my experience, so it's interesting when you go startup to startup to startup to startup. Like most people as founders, you know, startups take five, six, 10, 15 years to go from the beginning to the end. So most founders may have experience at a couple startups, but not a whole bunch. And then you look at executive folks, like depending on how long they've been there, I mean, they might have a handful of startups under their belt. But with me, because I had so many startups where I came in, we grew really fast, I got acquired, then I'm in another company, then I leave, then I go to a startup, I came in, we grow, we we get acquired. So across all seven of them, plus the big companies that acquired them, you start seeing these patterns in a way that you wouldn't if you just did one or two. Like, trust me, I thought I was product marketing super genius after the first one got acquired. I was like, oh, I know how to do all this stuff. And then you go into the next one and you try to run the same playbook and you're like, whoops, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And so one of the main patterns that I saw is that across every single one of those products that I worked on in the little companies and in the big companies, at some point we had to do a repositioning. And that repositioning turned out to be really, really hard. And if we got it right, 
looking back on it, if we were successful, looking back on it, it seemed like the pivotal moment. Like if we could get the positioning right, then everything downstream from the positioning was really, really easy. But if the positioning was wrong, everything we were trying to do was like running uphill. It was just, everything was way, way harder. And so I think the biggest mistake that I saw in the startups that I worked at in particular is that we didn't do a very good job of positioning. And because the positioning was weak, everything we were trying to do in marketing was weak. Everything we were trying to do in sales was weak. You looked at our product roadmap and what we were trying to do on the product side, and that stuff was a bit scattered because we weren't tight on the positioning. And so that's kind of been my focus area for the last couple of years, actually. So positioning is kind of my bag. Yeah. And so you've launched, what, 16 products I heard into the market, most yeah. of them successful, few failed. Yeah. Is, is it a positioning issue and the difference between success or failure? Or what in general can you share about those different experiences? Yeah. Like, you know, I can't say good positioning is going to guarantee that you're going to be successful because there's so much in the execution of that positioning that can go wrong. But I can tell you that if you are deliberate in the way you position products early on, then if there are some potential big minefields, you're going to see them when you're working through that positioning stuff. Like if I look at, I had a couple stinkers that failed. And if I looked at the two that failed, it was clear in hindsight, if you look back and dug into the positioning of each of those, we would have known if we had done a good job positioning the two stinkers right from the beginning, we would have known. So the one failed because we had we were positioned very well for a very specific market. The market just wasn't big enough to meet our business goals. And so we never actually went that far. Like we we were kind of positioned by accident in a market that we thought was very good, but we assumed that that market stretched a lot farther than it did and it didn't. And so the, the product essentially failed because we just couldn't sell enough of it because it wasn't a good fit for any other market other than this one very specific thing. The second one failed because we simply didn't have a differentiated offering. So we had a product, it had value for a certain market, but the value wasn't differentiated at all. And so it was a crowded market. There were lots of people in our space. If we had really sat down and said, you know what, these are the competitors that buyers compare us to. And what do we have that they don't? The answer would have been nothing, man. <laughs> we just we have kind of a crappy thing that it wasn't crappy. It was perfectly fine, but it wasn't clearly differentiated and we were kind of in a dogfight, and the other folks in the market were bigger than us, better funded than us. They'd been around longer than us, so they had more customer references than we did. They basically had a whole bunch of things going for them. We had kind of a me too thing that wasn't differentiated. So if I look at the failures, those ones failed for those reasons. The good ones, I think, you know, we had tight positioning. We executed very well on that positioning, and we were consistently diligent about checking in on the positioning every once in a while to make sure like, is this still why people love us? Is this still the market we're going after? Is this still our differentiated value? Is this still our segmentation? And we were always conscious of the fact that we may have to make adjustments to it and we're not just going along on autopilot. Yeah. So positioning's your stick. You write a lot about it. It's, it's a really important aspect for product managers that I think is neglected, I think, by a lot of them, kind of like pricing. 
Uh, yeah. It seems like the P's maybe get neglected. Yeah, uh, I'm with you on the pricing thing too. Your pricing's another one. I think profit. pricing and positioning are a little bit tied together, actually. They are. They are. They definitely are. Could we step back a little and can you tell our listeners kind of a, a, a general overview of what you think about positioning? Yeah. So positioning as a concept isn't new. Like it's been around since, well, you know, the, the book that everybody's read on positioning is this book by these guys, Rees and Trout, called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. And that book was published in 1982, like before the internet. <laughs> That's how old this book is. And so, you know, I mentioned I was an engineer and I kind of plopped into product and marketing. Like, you know, I did this self-study thing where I was very paranoid about maybe there's stuff I should know that I don't know. And this positioning thing kept coming up. And so I thought, well, I'll read this book and I'll figure it out. And the book does this fantastic job of defining what it is. It just doesn't give you many clues how to do it. And so at a fundamental level, what positioning is all about is it's about being very explicit around this is how we intend to win at doing a very specific thing that a very specifically defined group of customers cares a lot about. So at a macro level, that's kind of how you define it. The trick, of course, is actually doing it and doing it well. For the most part, I think we kind of get what positioning is. Like I certainly thought I knew what it was the first couple jobs that I had. But we didn't ever actually do it. Like the closest we came to doing it was, you know, there's this thing that you learn in marketing class called the positioning statement, which is the dumbest thing ever. It's like this mad libs fill in the blank exercise where you say, we are a blank and you define what you are. And then you say what market category you're in and who your competitors are, what your value is and how that's differentiated. And you just kind of fill in the blanks and write it down in a statement. But you know, in the books I read and the classes I took, they never told you how to come up with the stuff in the blanks. And it's the stuff in the blanks that's really super important. And, you know, if you were to just do the positioning statement exercise, you would be tricked into thinking that the answers to what's in the blank is obvious because they didn't give you any instructions for it. So it should be just the thing that pops in your head, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and it so isn't. Like every single product I've worked on, we've repositioned it at some point. Every single product we've, I've worked on, we could have positioned it in three or four different markets. And it would have been more or less successful based on which market we happen to have chosen. And so frequently, the one that's the most obvious that pops into your head is frequently not the best one for you to be positioned in. But the positioning statement kind of tricks you into that. So... In my opinion, you know, positioning is all about figuring out how you're going to win and who you're going to win with at a very deep strategic level. And you aren't going to get it done by doing this kind of Mad Libs positioning statement thing. So is that what people generally get wrong about positioning is they, they fill out this Mad Libs or I mean, what else do people well, get I'll wrong? Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's, two, there's two things. Either they fill out the Mad Libs and they just write down whatever comes into their head and they say, whew, wipe my hands, done with positioning. <laughs> or what's more common is they just fail to position deliberately at all. So the majority of the companies where I worked in, the, the process kind of went like this. Like the founders 
woke up and they decided, you know what we're going to build? We're going to build a better database or we're going to build a better CRM or we're going to build better email. And then they build that thing. Problem is they get it out in the market and customers say, Ooh, I like that. Or, Oh, I don't like that. So you're taking things away. You're adding things to it. At the same time, the market landscape is changing. So, you know, competitors are coming in and out and things that were once differentiating are no longer differentiating. But what typically happens is in startups anyways, is the founders and the people that have been working there for a long time, they're like, oh, this thing is, this thing is email. That's what I went to build. It's, it's email. What else could it be? But, they, but what they end up with is this thing that, geez, you know, it kind of looks like chat or it kind of looks like team collaboration. And is, but they're still walking into the room and training their sales reps and everything else and saying, hey, you know, you look at our fancy email thing. And the customers look at it and go, I don't know. I don't think that's email. I don't think it looks like email. And so what, what ends up happening is you've got this weekly position thing because nobody ever checked in to see is the original thing that we set out to build, is that actually what we have? And maybe if we looked at what was really differentiating and really special about what we've got, for the customers that love us the most, maybe we could actually contextualize it in a different way. If we wrapped it around a different market, if we wrapped a different market around it, it might be easier to understand. It might be clearer what the actual product is all about if we you know, put it in a different context. So I can give you an example of that if, if, that, if that helps. Like I had some guys call me they raised some funding and their problem was that they've, they've got all these customers that love them and nobody churns and the customers are super happy and they recommend it to other people. But when they're going in to do sales pitches, people don't get it. So they come to me and they say, you know what? We think we got a positioning problem. People don't get it when we pitch it to them for the first time. And they said, okay, pitch it to me. And they said, well, okay, here's what we are. We're lawyers. We're ex-lawyers. We decided we're going to build email for lawyers. So we built this thing and we put it out. People love it. I said, great, show me the demo. So they're showing me the demo. And the thing does kind of look like email. It kind of looks like chat. It's sort of real time. And so I said to the guy, I was like, this is really fascinating. I didn't think lawyers needed their own special email. Like, what do you guys do for a calendar? And the guy says, oh, we don't have a calendar. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you can't be email and not have a calendar. Like, what do you mean you don't have a calendar? So you're telling me I can't get rid of my existing email? Like, I can't get rid of Gmail or Outlook? The guy says, no, no, you wouldn't replace that with us. We don't have a calendar. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, so weird. And then I said, well, what if, you know, you got all these happy customers. Why do they love you? And he says, well, we've developed this thing. We got a patent on it and stuff. And it's this super secure, context-aware file sharing. And he shows it to me. And it's cool. Like, you're a lawyer. You're working on a deal. You know, you have to share documents and things. And that needs to be secure. And so these guys they have this way of sharing a document that's super secure and it kind of guesses based on the email and how you guys communicate to each other, who should have access to that thing and who shouldn't. So it's super sophisticated and cool. But again, is that email? Like I don't actually expect email to do that. So if I took a big step backwards and said, you know, I want to position this thing around its strengths, I would start with this thing that everybody loves, which is this super secure file sharing patented do that thing and say, well, you know, could I position this product in a different market where that thing sits in the middle instead of, you know, if I call it email, it doesn't even belong there. And so they repositioned themselves in the team collaboration space. And that made a huge difference to the success of the company in that, 
you know, of course it does team collaboration. Of course it doesn't have a calendar. I don't expect it to have a calendar. And then everything's different, right? The competitive comparable is no longer email, like Gmail or Outlook. The competitive comparable is now Slack, except they're team collaboration for lawyers. And, you know, if you start thinking, well, if you wanted a Slackish thing for lawyers, what would it do? Well, it'd probably do some cool stuff around file sharing, which is exactly what they do. And then it impacted, we were talking about pricing earlier, like it totally impacted pricing because it was very hard for them to charge when this thing was email because they're getting compared to email and email is pretty much free. Now they're team collaboration and everyone's kind of comparing them to Slack. And so you pay more money for that. And then they say they're team collaboration for lawyers. So it's special. So they can bump the price even a little bit more. I kept telling them, I said, you know what? You guys are for lawyers specifically, what you should do is charge people by the minute. And we had a big laugh about that. You know, I was like, charge the lawyers by the minute. See how they like it. <laughs> but they didn't have the guts to do that. <laughs> that would be awesome. But I was like, you know what? You should do that just for me and report back how the lawyers reacted when you said that. I mean, if, if nothing else, it would be a great April Fool's joke saying they're changing their pricing model to yeah. charge by the minute and make a big splash about exactly. it. I want to be in that room when they have that pricing discussion. I'm like, that would have been hilarious. Anyway, so so this idea of, you know, the thing that you set out to build you end up in this kind of default positioning, like it's email. What else can it be? That's always what we said. This is it. But, you know, in the future, you might look around and your customers are looking at you all squinty eyed saying, I don't know, man, you're saying email, but it doesn't seem like email doesn't even have a calendar for Pete's sake. So, and that's the biggest mistake folks make is they just don't do it deliberately in the first place. And then unfortunately, when they do think, oh man, maybe I've got a positioning problem, and they go looking for tools in a process and what do they get? Buddy positioning statement is the most useless thing in marketing. <laughs> so, you know, so I made this kind of a mission the last couple of years to like build a positioning process so that if you're a startup and you think you got this problem, here's how you do it. Step one this, step two this, step two this. And so I now have this process that I work companies through as a consultant, but it blows my mind that such a thing does not exist in the world already. Yeah, it's, it's definitely very interesting. And I must admit that in a past company, I've done the Mad Libs, you know, fill in the blanks. In fact, probably paid a consultant a lot of money to facilitate that whole process. Yeah. But let's forget about that now. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? I did it too, man. I did it too. Like I, the, the first time, you know, I had this job at IBM. It was kind of this fancy executive job. And IBM has this very famous, very deep, very well thought out product release process. Like it's actually kind of a thing of beauty. If you had all the money and time and resources, this is how you would deliver products. And so I got this fancy executive job and we're releasing this product. And I'm like, oh, I'm finally going to learn how the big guys do this, you know? And, and, And so there's a step in this process called positioning. And I'm like, awesome. I'm finally going to get to see how this award-winning, super-duper product release process, how do they do positioning? And sure enough, I get to the positioning stage and what's there? That freaking positioning statement. And I was so disappointed. I went to my boss and I said, I'm not filling that out. I'm just not. And my boss is looking at me, what do you mean? And I'm like, this is stupid. And so I give him my whole rant, you know, about why the positioning statement is stupid and blah, blah, blah. And the guy's sitting there, he was, he had pretty good sense of humor. He's sitting there with his arm crossed and he's at his desk and he says, hmm, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, you're right. You, you kind of convinced me. That's kind of stupid. But you know what, April, like, 
Do you enjoy getting your paycheck here? Like, do you enjoy being part of IBM fancy job? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do, Paul. And he's like, just do the damn statement. (laughs) Okay, fine. And 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 I like rage filled out this thing and then, you know, stuck it in the binder and nobody referred to it ever again. It bummed me out. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but you brought up a good point too there when you're talking about, you know, email versus team cloud lawyers. It's it's a frame of reference, right? And yeah. when people go to the default, they can often create a hill they have to push up as opposed to like a, a rock rolling down a hill, right? Exactly. It's, it, they need to think of this more strategically from the offset or the onset. Yeah, or at least at some point, right? You can always fix the you can fix the positioning anytime you want, right? You just have to take a checkpoint and say, look, like you know, is declaring ourselves to be in this particular market helping us, or is it like you say, pushing the rock up the hill? And you feel it, like if you've got good solid positioning, really does feel like you're running into the wind, or sorry, bad positioning feels like you're running into the wind, and good positioning. Feels like, it feels like you're lucky. Like it just feels like everything's just a little bit easier than it should be. Like you do stuff that should work and it works. Like it's when the positioning's really good, like everything downstream from that feels really good. But when the positioning's bad, it's the opposite. It's like, why is this so hard? Why does it take our sales reps three meetings before the light comes on and everyone says, oh, you're that. Oh, I see why I would buy you. And so it's just this friction all across everything you're doing that just doesn't need to be there. But again, often people don't actually take this big step back and say, you know what, maybe we need to take a look at this and figure out, can I put a whole different frame of reference around this thing that is going to make everything easier? Yeah, absolutely. So you also wrote this context trumps products, right? In one of your blog posts. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, well, it's it's kind of another way of saying the same thing, right? Like, so again, if I go back to this email for lawyers example, you know, as long as those guys are trying to take this perfectly good, awesome product, but put it in this context email, it's never going to be great email. It doesn't even have a calendar. And so here you've got this great product sitting in the wrong context. And in the wrong context, like, what is it? It's crappy email when it could be amazing team collaboration. And so if you have this great, great product, but you put it in this wrapper where no one can figure it out, or in fact, they're comparing it to stuff they shouldn't even be comparing it to, then it's going to fail. And and it's the context that's going to kill you. Like I have another product that I worked on. It was this database product. And again, built by guys with PhDs, database technology, and we had patents on this thing. And it was this totally cool database. And what it could do was if you had like terabytes of data, an absolute mountain of data, and you had to do a needle in a haystack style query, like an analytic query, it could do this thing that a regular relational database would take hours, like hours and hours. We had a bank that was running a query like that. It took 12 hours. They had to run it on the weekend. (laughs) Whereas if you used our database to do it, it could return the result in like minutes. So they went from like 12 hours to three minutes. It was like magic. So we go out to sell this thing and we're pitching it to customers and we're like, hey, I got this amazing database. And you're sitting in a room full of database people. The database people are looking at you like, oh man, database. If there's one thing we don't need around here, it's another database. We use Oracle. We're all certified on Oracle. We don't need another database. Oracle's just fine. 
And we're in there going, no, 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 it's a special, special, special database, special, special stuff. <laughs> and, you know, we ended up repositioning that thing well, first as a BI tool or an analytics tool, because that's all we did that was really good. Like databases are good for lots of things, but our sweet spot was this analytics query. And eventually we repositioned it as a data warehouse for machine generated data, which was exactly what we did. But if I kept calling it a database, it was a loser as a database. But as a data warehouse for machine generated data, it was kind of the only game in town for a couple of years there. So context can take something that's actually a pretty hot shot, amazing product and make it look like poo (laughs) because you're comparing it to the wrong things and you're setting up this thing in the minds of your customers that, oh, well, your database, you should be able to do any kind of query for any kind of whatever. And we're going to rip all our Oracle out and replace it with you instead of saying, no, 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 we're we're a data warehouse for machine generated data. Oh, well, why didn't you just say so? Well, of course, it's only for analytic queries. And of course, it's a specialized use. And of course, it's, you know, of course, that's what it does. And it's great at that. And we love it. That's interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about this framing problem. Can you give the listeners maybe four quick little tips about how to approach framing and make sure they're thinking about it properly from a strategic perspective so they don't get stuck in this default frame of reference kind of thing? Yeah. So the first thing is if you start seeing these symptoms of weak positioning, and the symptoms generally are people don't really get what you do or they don't really get the value of what you do. And so getting a deal done feels hard because at the beginning, there's just this confusion. They don't get what you do. They compare you to people that aren't, that you wouldn't consider your competitors at all. They don't intuitively understand the value and it takes a long time. And so you'll see this kind of stickiness across your funnel if you're in B2B where things are just slow and they shouldn't be. So first of all, you have to kind of recognize the signs. And then the second thing you got to do is you got to say, okay, we may have a positioning problem. And so we may need to open our minds a little bit here to, I know we always thought we were database people building databases, but maybe we're not. Let's just open our minds for a minute. And then I think that what the work I do with clients is we go through this kind of process where, and it starts with, if I look at your best customers, like the, the, the deals that close fast, the people that don't ask for discounts, the people that love you, the people that recommend you, the, the people that never churn. If I went and had a conversation with those customers and said, you know what, what were you doing before you had us? Or if we went away, what would you use? And you have to kind of start there to figure out what your true competitive alternatives are. And then this is the starting point, because often what you'll get, particularly in startups, is they'll say, oh, we have competitors and they'll list all these dinky do little startups that nobody's ever heard of. And it's like, trust me, your customers don't see those as competitors. They don't even know those companies exist because they all have four customers. <laughs> but what your competitor, and often in B2B in a startup, your real competitor is Excel or hire an intern or do it manually or clobble it together with a bit of, you know, word and forms and a bunch of other awful things. So the first thing you got to do is get a real handle on in the minds of your customers. What are the real competitive alternatives? Then you can look at what do I have feature function wise that the competitive alternatives do not. This is usually a giant long list of things, right? I can save a profile. I can do this. I can do whatever. When we workshop through this, me with startups, Usually we get like this giant list of things. 
And then you say, okay, these are all the features and functions I have that are differentiated from the competitive alternatives. Next, I can say, all right, if I go down that list one by one, what value for customers do those features enable? Because the customer doesn't care about the feature. They just care about what the feature enables them to do. And the interesting thing that happens in that is that value tends to kind of theme out. There's usually two or three big buckets that, you know, half your features or three quarters of your features will fit in one, two, or three of these buckets. And that kind of gets you to your differentiated value. So this is your secret sauce. This is what you can do that the other folks can't do. Or, and, and when we say other folks, we mean the true competitive alternatives, not the ones you may be thinking of in your mind. Once you have that value, then you can say, all right, this is what we do that's differentiated and cool. This is our secret sauce. Then you got to look at the universe of customers that might buy your product and say, who cares a lot about that and why? This is your segmentation or your actionable segmentation. So it's usually much more than firmographics or demographics. It's usually like people come to me and say, oh, we sell to small businesses. And that's such a bullcrap segmentation. Like small businesses are so different that that's almost never who you're really selling to. Like, and if I scratch at it and say, oh, well, is it car dealerships? No, no, not car dealerships. Oh, well, is it hairdressers? No, not hairdressers. Then after I ask 50 questions, it'll turn out the small businesses they're talking about are other startups. <laughs> it's like, okay, startups are actually a really weird category of small businesses. Or they might say, it's actually restaurants or service-based businesses. And why is the next question. So you might say your secret sauce is a particular thing. And lots of people care about that thing. But if you have this type of business or they use these types of products already or they have this kind of expertise, then they're going to feel the pain harder than anybody else. They're going to put bigger value on what you can deliver than anyone else. And this should get you to a segmentation of who your best fit customers are. Now, you need to look at that and make sure that your best fit customer segment is big enough to meet your business goals. But if you look at it and say, man, we could just sell to these best fit folks for the next three quarters and make all our number, then just sell to them and position for them and you're good. And then anyway, so that's your segmentation. And then the last thing is this market category thing. So what you're trying to do is you're looking for a market context that makes that differentiated value obvious to these folks in your best fit customer segment. And that's how you should be picking what market you need to be positioned in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a meaty thing. And it took me a long time to get to this process. Like at the beginning, I thought, you know what? I've positioned stuff. I know how to do this. But then when I actually try to teach people how to do it, it was really hard. And part of it was, you know, you needed to break positioning down and into component pieces. But then when you're figuring out each of the component pieces, which are essentially the blanks in a positioning statement, you actually have to work through them in a certain order. Otherwise, what you'll get to isn't differentiated or it isn't actually the value that your customers see. It's the value that you see. And so putting that all together in a framework was kind of hard until I got my head around that. Like it's not just breaking it into pieces. It's putting them together in the right order and then once you have that, then you can get to, this is actually my best differentiated positioning for this market. 
So talk to me a little bit about how it changes over time, because I imagine it changes over time, yeah. maybe particularly, you know, while you're trying to get to that product market fit afterwards, when new competitors come in the market, when there's uh-huh. new kind of big industry trends, so to speak. Yeah, so there's there are lots of things that can impact your positioning. So first I'll talk about what happens post-product market fit, and then I'll talk about what happens pre-product market fit. And I'll preface all of that with I kind of don't believe product market fit's a thing, but, but but I'll talk about like once you have a certain amount of traction in the market, like you have a certain number of customers and you start seeing the patterns. This is who loves us and why. This is why people choose us. This is who people compare us to. Once you can see those patterns, then you're ready to actually get really tight on your positioning and do a positioning exercise and figure it out. But then after you've done it, you don't know how long it's actually going to last. Like I've worked on products where, you know what? The first product I ever worked at, my very first startup still exists today. It is part of a, you know, the product's still there as part of a gigantic company. And the product itself is like a billion dollar business. And the positioning that we worked through while I was there has pretty much not changed. (laughs) Like the wording's changed a little bit. We used to talk about it being an embeddable database for mobile devices. And now they use a lot more wording around internet of things, but it's essentially still an embeddable database for mobile devices. Like it's still kind of the same thing. It's amazing to me. And that's 25 years or something. And positioning hasn't changed and it still works. But I've had other ones where we positioned in a market and then, you know, we're checking in on it six months from now and everything's changed. Like the technology's really changed. We had a big competitor come into our market that was super well-funded. I had one where our secret sauce, like our differentiated value was all around this particular patented feature we had. And so we thought it was very defensible. No one can copy us. And it was a thing that a selected set of customers really, really cared about. And then we had this other startup come in the market And they had a different patent on a different thing, but the result was the same for customers. And so it was such a bummer. Our thing that was totally differentiated and we thought was quite defensible, it turned out you could actually get the same thing done with a very different process. And so they patented that. And then we went from being this super differentiated thing to like being head to head against these guys. And we had raised like $8 million and this company came into the market and they raised a (laughs) hundred. We were like, oh no. (laughs) And so we had to very quickly adjust our positioning to take that into account. So sometimes you have things like, you know, sometimes it's like the economy changes. Like I've been in things where, you know, the economy goes for a dump and we were very much positioned around, you know, you want this thing because you're going to make more revenue with it. And then all of a sudden our customers were like, dude, we're not focused on revenue this year. All we care about is cost cutting. So tell me how I'm going to save some money with this thing or else you're out. And so we had to adjust the positioning to focus on that stuff more because our key differentiator just wasn't that important to people all of a sudden. Sometimes you'll get things like regulatory stuff happens. Like we saw this with GDPR where, you know, at one point privacy was not such a big deal And then all of a sudden it was in certain markets. And so you might've had to adjust your positioning in response to that. So once you're kind of past a certain amount of traction, you do the positioning, but you have to be constantly vigilant that there isn't something happening 
in the technology space or in the market or in the environment that would cause you to have to adjust it. And so I usually recommend that every six months, you need to very consciously check in and say, are all, do all our assumptions still hold? Is this really still differentiating? Do customers really still love this? Is this really how we're going to win? And you need to do that every six months. You raised a good point at the beginning of this question, though, like pre-product market fit, what do you do? So I get a lot of calls from really early stage startups I haven't even launched anything in the market yet, or maybe they got one or two kind of beta customers working on an MPV or something. And in those cases, I actually think if you don't have enough customer traction to be able to see the patterns in this is why people love our stuff and this is what they compare us to and all the things you would need to do to do a good job of positioning, then I actually recommend the opposite, which is you need to kind of keep your positioning loose because you don't actually know where the thing is going to go yet. You might have a theory and your best positioning is probably to just position around that theory. Like these are the people I think are going to love it. And and this is why, because that's why we built the product, but to keep it kind of loose until you're sure, sure, sure that that's true. Like the analogy I usually use around this is, you know, let's say you, you built a fishing net <laughs> and, and you built it thinking this is going to be a fishing net for tuna and, and it's going to be amazing until you've actually gone and caught some tuna with that thing. You don't actually know, like you, you have a theory, you think it's going to work. And so you have a choice. You could either say, hey, this is the world's greatest tuna net and just go to the tuna part of the ocean and fish for tuna and see whether or not that works. Or you could say, you know what? It's just a fishing net for big fish. I don't know, any kind of big fish maybe. And you go to the part of the ocean where there's all kinds of fish. You throw the net in there and then you see what you pull up. And because this happens like this in startups all the time, you pull it up and you say, oh, I thought it was good for tuna, but you know what it's really good for? Grouper. Look at all the grouper in there. And then you go to the, and then you can say, oh, you know what I got? I got the world's greatest grouper net. Then I go to the grouper part of town and fish all kinds of grouper. We say the same thing in startups, right? Where at the beginning we'll say, well, I, you know, I assume lawyers are going to really love this, or I assume small business of a certain type are going to love this. But often you get it out there and it turns out, eh, not really. Or you might be surprised that there's a segment that you didn't even think about actually dying for your stuff. And you don't want to get the positioning so tight at the beginning that you exclude those people. You actually want to keep it kind of loose and, you know, cast the net pretty wide and then see what happens. And then once you start getting a bit of traction, you start seeing the patterns, then you tighten it up and then you can really get some good traction in that segment. But at the beginning, you don't really know what segment to focus on. So it's better to keep it loose. You mentioned something really interesting there about you don't necessarily believe in product market fit in the beginning of that answer. Can you expound <laughs> on that a little bit? <laughs> So this is the thing. I keep having these conversations with people. And at the beginning, somebody accused me of just being contrary and just saying, I don't believe in it just because I want to look cool or something. But I literally don't believe in product market fit. The reason I don't believe in it is because I have yet to come across a startup that has given me a really good answer for how do you know you got product market fit? And the thing that really bugs me in the concept of product market fit is we generally talk about, you know, I surveyed a bunch of customers. I got a bunch of customers. I did a survey and I asked them, how disappointed would you be if this product went away? And all the people said, oh my gosh, so disappointed. 
And then I come back and say, I have product market fit. And then I say, well, what's your market? And they don't know. So they've never done this actionable segmentation thing. Like, so I could have customers that span seven or eight different markets. So because I still don't know, like I can survey people and say, yeah, my mom, my, my cousin, Louie, my brother, uh, you know, my friend down the street, I surveyed them and they all love my thing and they don't want it to go away. Product market fit, boop, boop, done. <laughs> and that's it. We know that's not true. And we know that's not the spirit of product market fit. But I meet loads and loads of startups that tell me we have product market fit. And I say, how do you know? And they say, well, look at our revenue. It's going up and to the right. But when I ask them, who loves your stuff and why, that is often very loosely defined. And so what they've got is a product that works. Like, like I don't doubt they have a good product. But what they don't know is, how do I get the next 50 customers? How do I get the next 100? How do I get the next 2,000? If you were to hire a sales rep right now, what account should that sales rep call into if he wants the best success, the best chance of success in closing deals? But is, is I that hire a marketing person right now and say, build me campaigns around this thing? Like, who are they going after? Is that an issue, though, of them not having product market fit? Or is that more of an issue of them? being positioned in a way that they don't understand, meaning they don't understand the segments they're positioned. And even though yeah. those segments might be really happy, they right. don't know what they are because they kind of maybe fell into their position, you know, being positioned right. in a good way. Right. So what you've got is some default positioning going on. And so far it hasn't hindered them. Everything's good. Now, what if they have product fit in a market that's just way too small and then they tap it out? Oh, yeah. Would absolutely. you still say they have product market fit? See, the problem is, is you maybe you have product market fit, but if you don't know what the dimensions of the market is, then how can you even say that? Like product market fit for what market? I don't know. We're just selling a lot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, it is interesting. Like, you know, like, like we say this, but it is a very product-centric view of the world. So what you're saying is, I got a product that people like, but you don't need, like, if, and if you don't know why, you don't know if it's at risk of going away. You don't know if it's at risk of tapping it out. You don't know if it's like, you don't know anything. And so if I can't measure when I have product market fit, why am I even trying to get product market fit? Why do we even care that that's a, I don't even think that's a thing. And so what I tell people is like, people will tell me, oh, I have product market fit. And then I'll ask them about their market. And then they don't really understand their market. And then we grew through this whole thing of let's get to an actionable segmentation. And I think everybody would be better to just worry about getting an actionable segmentation because once you have that, you got something you can do something with. If I know startups that have raised a series B that are hiring more than 10 sales reps this year, really, really want my product. I can build a list. I can tell my salespeople who to call into. I can build a marketing program for that. I, I can go to town and sell like a maniac on that. If I say, hmm, tech companies seem to like my stuff, you're wasting a lot of resources there going after tech companies that don't have 10 new hires or don't have a Series B or whatever. And hidden in there is this signal that you haven't read yet. And so I feel like we'd be better to just like, the, I think the concept of product market fit, if it is a thing, it's an unhelpful thing. And it would be better for you to just really, really understand your segmentation, who loves you a lot 
and why, the more you understand that, that is an actionable thing. I can build sales programs around that. I can build marketing programs around that. I can build, you know, a product roadmap around that. But you tell me product market fit. I'm like, I have it. I don't, whatever. Who cares? I, you know, like, I don't even know if it's a thing. Like, like and then everybody tells me, I say, well, what, what do you do differently once you have product market fit versus not having product market fit? And they're like, oh, well, once you have product market fit, that's when you throw gasoline on the fire and you put your foot on the floor and you go crazy on hiring salespeople and marketing people. And I'm like, but you don't know who you're going after. So you're wasting a ton of money, energy, time, people, resources, going after a quote unquote market that you don't even know what the boundaries of it are. I don't know. I, 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 I think here's, what, here's my theory on product market fit. Investors want product market fit to be a thing. Because what product market fit represents is the ideal moment for you to invest in a startup. And I want a pony too, but that those things do not exist. No ponies? No pony, no product market fit. <laughs> <laughs> See, I believe in ponies. It is a thing. <laughs> I do believe in ponies. I think they exist. And I also think product market fits exists, but I don't necessarily contradict much of what you said there. I think right. there's I don't, areas I don't think where thought deeply about product market fit. I mean, I think I think, you know, at a very macro level, we understand the idea that at the beginning, uh, in the early days of a product, there's a thrashing around phase where we're not really sure whether it's working or not working. And then at some point later, we don't feel like we're thrashing around so much. We feel like we got it. It's going, we're selling, you know, things are good. But where the magic happens in between here and there is anybody's guess. And, you know, and again, investors would really like to know when that exact moment is because that's the moment to throw some cash in there for, you know, you don't want to throw it in earlier. And if you throw it in later, you, you miss the magic moment. But I don't, uh, just because investors want it to be a thing doesn't make it a thing. I don't think it's a thing. That is definitely true. You can't make something a thing just because you want it to be a thing. <laughs> Big pony. I feel, I want I feel pony. like we need yeah, a longer debate on this, but unfortunately yeah. we don't have as much time here today. So let me take you on to the future. Like, what do you see for trends upcoming in product management? I don't know. You know, I right now I'm really into this, like, fundamentals thing. Like I, I feel like, and I think this is true more on the marketing side, but you see it a bit on the product side too, that I think in the last five, six years, there's been a lot of money flowing in to startups in particular. I think the market for startups has been good. There's been a lot of experimentation. And what happens when, you, when you're in a phase like that is you can get away with a lot of stuff that doesn't work all that well. And, you know, as long as the market's going and you got lots of runway and the, the investments flowing, it can cover up a lot of weak stuff. And I feel like we are moving into a bit of a phase where there's some backlash against some of this stuff that was kind of new and cool a couple of years ago and a bit of a retrenching or maybe pulling back a little bit and saying, look, you know, a lot of that new cool stuff didn't actually help us. So, you know, like, like right now on the marketing side, I see this great backlash against growth hacking because a lot of it just was interesting. And I still fundamentally believe in the, 
you know, the systematic process of experimentation that comes with growth hacking. But a lot of the stuff we did in growth hacking was just crappy spamming and just bugging customers or tricking customers or just what we would call really bad, terrible, untargeted trickster marketing. And so we're now seeing sort of a backlash against that because it's very hard to sustain that kind of stuff. You'll get short-term gain out of it, but longer term, it doesn't work. And so I kind of feel like we're going back. There's a bit of a, you know, we're turning around a little bit and looking at fundamentals. Like, I think it's really interesting that people are talking about branding again. And we haven't talked about branding and like that's been, I don't know, 10 years probably since I had people out on the circuit saying branding is a thing and it matters. Like, you know, and so I think we're seeing the pendulum swing back to some of this more fundamental stuff. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. Yeah, I feel like we could go in and argue about brand for the enterprise too, right? Oh, we could super argue about brand because <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, a brand hater. But I think part of what's changed is our definition of branding has changed. And I really like the new definition of branding. Like the old definition of branding was, you know, advertising and colors and logos and feelings, whereas the new definition of branding is all about experience, right? All the different ways that a customer experiences your company and sort of the the sum total of the customer's experience across their journey with you. If that's what branding is, I'm a big believer in that because I'm coming from enterprise B2B. I, I, you know, I care very little even as a marketer, I care very little about the fonts and whether or not we use stock photo and blah, blah, blah. I think all that stuff for a lot of enterprise companies is people spend too much time thinking about it. But if branding is customer experience across the journey, oh, I'm all about that. That's super important. Of course. Yeah, and I think that's where it is going. I think that's where brand is going. Um, it is. I think it is. And I like that. Like, if that's what it is, great. I'm all for branding. Let's bring on the branding. So let's talk a little bit about product leaders and their qualities since we have you here today. I mean, you've worked with a lot of different teams and a lot of different companies on a lot of different products. Do you you see a set of qualities that are common among successful product leaders? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I don't know if this would be news to anybody out there, but you know, I think successful product leaders have a like leading products are a super hard job. Like you're kind of wedged in the middle of a bunch of departments. And so you got to be a great negotiator. You have to be super persuasive. You have to come with the facts and, you know, change everybody's hearts and minds about something. And so you got to be a great leader, but you also got to be a great team player. You got to be persuasive. Like there's a lot of people skills, in my opinion, that come into play with a great product leader you know, even though you still got to have technical chops, you still got to deeply understand the market and customers, like you need all of that stuff. But I feel like that's kind of table base table stakes for a good product leader. But a great product leader manages to know all that same stuff, but has the people skills to make stuff happen. And that making stuff happen when you're not in charge of development, you're not in charge of marketing, you're not in charge of sales, you're not the CEO, (laughs) but you got to influence all those people to make something happen. And so I think the the great product leaders that, you know, have worked with me or, or worked underneath me have been like that. They've got all that base level stuff, really good on product, really good on market, but they're also really good at 
making a very convincing case, getting everybody together, getting alignment and getting agreement so that we can all move forward and really make stuff happen. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about April as we wrap up here. What's your favorite product? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I'll tell you, I've been a little bit obsessed with Peloton for, for the last couple of months. You know, Peloton, they, they have this. Um, Absolutely. It was, everybody knows Peloton. So, so I'm a runner and I happen to be doing a, a renovation on my house right now. And so I'm putting a gym in the basement. And I live in Toronto, and so it sucks running in the winter. And so I'm going to put a treadmill in my basement. And Peloton has made the world's most amazing treadmill. Like, it's, it's so amazing. <laughs> like, I just can't get over it. And it's so, first of all, there's the whole Peloton thing, you know, that they're all about metrics, but they're also about community. And they've got these amazing instructors and this huge library of classes you can take. And and it's all about the music and the people and the community and the thing. And then on top of that, they got this hardware that is so sweet. You know, like I was kind of bought into the whole Peloton thing before I ran on the treadmill. And then I ran on the treadmill and I was like, oh man, <laughs> like the treadmill is perfect. Like it's, it's just, I've never even run on a treadmill like that before. It's like, it's all on magnets. It's super silent. It's got this dial that the minute you turn it, like it almost instantly responds. Like, you know, a normal treadmill, you're pushing the speed up button where you're going beep, beep, yep, yep. beep, beep, and it's super slow. This thing has a dial and you go whoop, and the thing is instantly going faster. It's silent. The tread on it feels amazing. I don't even know how to describe it. And the thing costs like a million dollars, basically. <laughs> So I like, I went and ran on this thing and I've been consumed with, you know, treadmill need that I feel like I, I need to have this treadmill because no other treadmill can compare on that. So I'm a little bit obsessed with the Peloton thing right now. I'm worried because I'm from startup land. I, I'm worried that they're overvalued. I'm worried that there's going to, you know, you're going to buy this super expensive treadmill and there's going to be some lock-in into their stuff and maybe they don't survive because there's too much venture money in there. And so the growth expectations are too high. And as a startup person, I've seen what happens to companies like that. And so that's my only reservation with them. But otherwise, gosh, I just think they're doing amazing stuff over there at Peloton. Yeah, I've never tried the treadmill. I've used the bike a few times. And I think that's I'm what not most- much of a biker. And I used the bike and I thought that was pretty good. Like to the point where I was almost like, I'm going to get into biking because of this thing. I'll put it in my gym and whatever. But then they came out with that treadmill and I was like, oh my goodness, look at sounds, that. Thing. Sounds awesome. I am going to have it to is awesome. the treadmill. Yeah, it's- you should go. Like you have to book and go into their store and, and run. And so they brainwash you with all the Peloton stuff while you're in there. But it's totally worth it to go run on that thing. Like it's amazing. My only my only complaint, if you're out there listening, Peloton, is you said that the tread was going to ship in Canada in January, and here we are in April, and it's still not shipping in Canada. That is disappointing to me. So maybe the tread's not go, doing that well, but but I may have to smuggle one across the border because I really need one. <laughs> I think I think you should. I definitely <laughs> think you should. So a, a final question for you today, and I, I guess the big thing, Toronto, right, with the treadmill, you're running in Toronto, too, and you you could get, like, lost in some of those mud puddles. You step in. Oh, my gosh. Toronto, like, you know what? Toronto actually has amazing running. Like, I'll give you my sales pitch on running in Toronto. There is all this green space in Toronto, and I live not right downtown, but kind of midtown, and I can do a 22-kilometer loop 
from my house and run less than a kilometer on concrete. The rest of it is on trails. Like it's amazing. Like the running is amazing, except January, February, March, when I'm like, it's all ice and snow and I'm taking my life in my hands. Like every winter I'm, I'm like, this is the winter where I fall down and break a hip and a collarbone and whatever else. So I feel like, you know, I, I need to have in some indoor running gears to help me make it through the winter because there's a few months of the winter here where it is just not cool running outside. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the snow ice or the big, you know, mud puddles, so to speak, when those things start to melt. So oh yeah, no. It's I, under, I understand the pain having, uh, you know, lived in Pittsburgh for quite a while. We yeah, yeah, Pittsburgh, same time. thing. I bet, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, one final question for you today: uh, three words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself. I, you know, I like to think that I'm smart. <laughs> I also like to think that I'm curious, which is part of what I really like about the work I'm doing now is I'm really curious about new products and what makes new products tick in the minds of customers and why are some things successful and not. And so I would say smart, curious. And then the last one, if I'm being really honest with myself, like 25 years of working in startups, I'm pretty cynical. (laughs) It's like the Peloton thing. I'm like, I love them, whatever, whatever, but they're probably going to fail. (laughs) so yeah those are my three words i think that's awesome i I didn't hear funny but if i could add a fourth that you know humorous is uh, probably there thanks i appreciate that (laughs) so april this has been wonderful appreciate your time today i've greatly enjoyed it feel like we have more content for a future event too so yeah yeah maybe i'll come back next time we'll just hate on product market fit for like an hour because i yeah, swear we can hate on that freemium and, and brand at least brand how it used to be yeah brand freemium product market fit these are three things that kind of bug me <laughs> <laughs> well thank you april this has been awesome all right well thank you so great to be on this has been product love thank you for tuning into this episode Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.